All right. This week, for our the, for the Bible study exercise, obviously we do for the podcast. We have today begins week two, and our study of discernment for that. And we been, we utilized it last week. We kind of did a study here last week for discernment. That was kind of like a the the beginning of week one for the study on discernment. And today begins week two. the The curriculum does an interesting, weird turn in week two and looks at a passage of scripture that really raises all kinds of other issues. It raises the issues really dealing with baptism. So uh, what we're doing to kind of supplement that is online, we're doing uh, the study on the early church and baptism. And I gave everyone three very important historical documents to look at. The Didache. Remember, the Didache was written in around 70 AD. So it's one of the earliest Christian writings that we have. We've studied the Didache here. So we had everyone look at the Didache, Tertullian on baptism, and Hippolytus on apostolic tradition. That gives us 70 AD to about 225 AD to 30 AD, giving us a very kind of a, a good historical glimpse of the early church's view on baptism. And you will notice and understand it can be very convoluted and very confusing at that point. Obviously, 70 AD, we don't even have a, a, a formulated complete canon yet. I mean, they, you know, we don't really have a canon until the festive letter by Athanasius. So you still have a lot of just trying to figure it out and some confusing things. So what we're doing for that is I'm having everyone online. We're going to create a chart basically saying, here's what the Didache, the Didache, depending on how you want to pronounce it, what it says in regards to baptism. Here's what Tertullian says in regards to baptism, <clears throat> if I don't lose my voice. And here's what Hippolytus says about baptism. We're going to make a chart showing the three. The reason we're going to do this is because so many times when you get into the debate about baptism, everyone starts yelling and screaming that, no, it was the, the early church had a consensus and everyone agreed upon it. But just going from the Didache to Hippolytus, you're going to realize, guess what? There's a lot of variation and a lot of things were happening. And there were a lot of things impacting what they believed in regards to baptism, all right? So it's kind of odd that the curriculum in the middle of discernment wants us to talk about baptism, but in another way, it really fits perfectly, right? Because what is discernment? Now, see how I just transitioned now into where we're going to be going? All right, discernment. What's a definition? Give me some working definitions of discernment. All right, the ability to obtain sharp perception. All right, well, something else about discernment. To judge well. Anything else? Okay, the ability to see that which is obscure, to be able to see what we may not can typically see. Well, when you're dealing with something like, say, the early church and baptism, there's a lot to discern. There's a lot to try to understand, right? And there's a lot of things that can impact what we see, right? So the discernment is an important concept, and Christians have talked about discernment for a good portion of the history of Christianity, about that as Christians. Now, some believe it's a supernatural gift that you have a supernatural ability to discern, but everyone believes that as Christians, we have to, we have, to have discernment, and we have to do what? Exercise discernment. And in some way, shape, or form, everyone utilizes discernment because everyone makes judgments, right? 
Everyone says, well, this or this or this is right and this is wrong and this is the correct way to think, this is the wrong way to think. Everyone utilizes discernment. The question is, good discernment or bad discernment, right? Is the discernment being used for good or is the discernment being used for bad? How is the discernment being utilized and how do we obtain it? We obviously know that obviously 2,000 years of church history, that all the supposed gifts of discernment that everyone supposedly has has led to, well, disagreement, 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 disagreement. And now we have thousands and thousands of Protestant groups all making different dogmatic claims, which is sometimes very frustrating, but it's just the reality in which we all live. So we have been, we, so it's just an interesting idea that the curriculum really leads us right into a discussion about baptism. So we're going to supplement that with the study on baptism. In the meantime, and this morning in our study on law and gospel, we went, we're, we're focusing on baptism there as well. So we're going to make sure we don't ignore that, right? Because on one hand, you kind of want to like, look, we're focusing on discernment. I can't get sidetracked to this, but we're going to just bring it all together so that it will all fit together. But we're going to go back this morning and try to take, kind of pick up where we left off last week, which was Genesis chapter 3. And why did we end up in Genesis chapter 3? Well, we ended up in Genesis chapter 3 because that's where the curriculum started us, Right? I remember this, the, the curriculum is just supplements what we do, right? It's, it's, we don't really follow it, but it just tells us kind of where, where to go. We kind of do our own thing, all right? That's really mainly for, uh, available for the people online who wants to utilize it. Okay, but for us, we went to Genesis 3. And here's the reason I decided to really focus in on Genesis 3. Because a lot of times in doctrine or theology, sometimes, now there's lots of dispute on how valuable this practice is, it's sometimes called the doctrine of first use, right? So, when, and remember, for the, for the discernment study, I'm having everyone do a word study method, a Bible study, right? And sometimes when people do a word study, one of the things you do is you determine the first use of a word, right? And there are those within Christianity who make a big deal, like the first use determines everything. And I, I think it's always interesting to see the first time it's used, Right? But I think we always have to be careful not to make more of it because you really have to take the totality of the biblical usage of it to try to get an idea. And then you can see sometimes it's used in various... Then the context can determine the meaning that is given. There are lots of things that go into a word study, okay? So, but, but I, thought, I thought it was interesting to go to Genesis 3 because in my estimation, I think the first real example of discernment it's found in Genesis chapter 3, and, and I'll, I'll just, we'll read it because, well, we, we've, we've talked about it, but I'm going to try to advance this this morning a little bit. Here we go. I think the first use of discernment is found immediately in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent, now we understand that the serpent here, it, typically we understand that the serpent is not obviously acting alone, but the serpent is being utilized by Satan. That's typically how we understand that. Now, the serpent was more subtle. Now, that, that's where I immediately, because I mean, we've studied this passage a zillion times. When I, when this time, when I looked at the word subtle, I was like, well, that, the word subtle, the word subtle, the word subtle. Now, depending on how you spare, which variation of the spelling of subtle you end up with, you end up with some slightly different definitions. 
And we talked a little bit about this uh, last week. If you spell subtle this way, now the King James spells it S-U-B-T-I-L, right? If you spell it S-U-B-T-I-L-E, here's what we get in Merriam-Webster. You ready? Subtle, elusive. That's not super helpful. Cunning, crafty. That gets us somewhere. But then they throw in this word. Is everybody familiar with this word? Sagacious. Sagacious. How many are familiar with the word sagacious? Okay, that, that's a good word to use today, right? All day, just walk around, use sagacious in any sentence. What does sagacious mean? Of keen and far-sighted penetration and judgment. Of keen and far-sighted penetration and judgment. You see where we're going? Guess what they place after that? Discerning. Caused by or indicating acute discernment. So if we look up subtle, we end up with cunning, crafty, sagacious, and discerning. So in a roundabout way, we could say that the serpent was what? The most discerning above all the beast of the field. But what does Satan do in his discernment? What is he discerning? He is discerning a situation where he attempts to do what? Here's God's creation, right? Created in the image of God. There's Eve, and he's going to use his discernment to get Eve to do what? To go against God's command, right? And to rebel. Now, how is he going to attempt to do this? Typically in preaching, it's viewed that, oh, he's going to get her to question God's word. He's going to get her to doubt God's word. And remember, I take a little different approach to this because I think he's being more discerning, more cunning, more crafty. He's more, he has a, a keen penetration in the situation. So what he attempts to do is this, right? He attempts to ask a question to get her focus not on what she can have, but to focus on what she cannot have. And remember how he does this? It's brilliant. Isn't it absolutely brilliant the way he does it? Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, we immediately know that it, it, it appears that he already knows the answer to this question, right? But the minute he asks her, hey, you're not allowed to eat of all the trees of the garden? Immediately, what is she getting ready to do? No, no, no. We can eat those, but we can't eat from that one. And, imme- and immediately, where does her focus become? On the one she cannot have. And look exactly what happens. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And then look at the ver- in verse 3. But, and whenever we see but, it negates everything that comes before. Immediately, but, her, forget, forget all of those trees. Here's the situation. And what does she say? But of the fruit which is in the Midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, yes, we could argue that she's adding maybe to God's word, but the point is, what is her focus now? She's the focus on what she can't have. 
Now, once she's focused on that, then all he has to do is now do what? Convince her. Get it. And what is, what is, his, use, what is his argument to use it? Number one, or to, 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 his argument to get her to partake of it? You shall not surely die. A complete, obviously, re- rejection of what God said. But then here's the key. For God doth know that in the days you eat thereof, your eyes shall be open and you, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, there's a, I mean, I know there's a million philosophical questions that can arise from this verse, but we won't get into all of those right now for this purpose, okay? But immediately he's got her, he's got her focused on that. That. And that's what we talked about last week. Now, here is, okay, this is going to be the thesis for the whole morning. Everybody thinking about it? Okay. When we speak of discernment, right? Discernment is something that resides where? Inside of us, right? Right? Discernment is something that flows from inside of us. So we are discerning or judging or perceiving. Now, this is where it can get convoluted a little difficult, but just make sure we understand. We are either judging or perceiving that which is outside of us based on something inside of us, or we're attempting to discern something inside of us based off discernment which is inside of us, which can become very difficult, right? So, but discernment is something inside of us. So here's discernment. Now, the thing is, what, what is going to... If discernment is inside of us, is it just a natural discernment? And I think we can agree. Everyone has a natural discernment, yes. Right? Everyone has a natural discernment. It doesn't matter Christian, non-Christian. People use, make judgments about things, yes? Right? Now, the key is, what is the influencing that discernment? What is formulating that discernment? What is structuring that discernment? What is the, what is the real engine behind it, Yes? Now, we know that there's a, a possible danger when it comes to discernment, right? Especially if holding to the theology that we hold to, right? We believe in depravity of man, yes, and that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Now, I know there's an argument because the Hebrew text translates Jeremiah 17 that way. The Septuagint translates it a different way. I understand that. But going with the majority way that it's understood the hardest, now just please note, desperately wicked is bad enough. But the next part, above all things, deceitful above all things. The most deceitful thing is not people in Washington. It's in us. Now you see where discernment's going to become a major problem, right? I'm sub- discernment is where? And within, and what is within? A deceitful heart. Above all things. That means discernment now becomes majorly convoluted in trying to figure this out. So we got something inside of us that's already causing a problem, yes? We already have something inside of us that's like, oh man, this, this is going to be difficult. Now, this is where it gets interesting, okay? So you've got discernment inside of you. Now, what else is happening to you, right? Not only do you have the depravity inside of you, you have all these things going on around you and outside of you that does what? Influence. In Eve's case, what is the one thing she is missing? 
Well, she doesn't have a sin nature. So from, from this particular case, she's, she's better off than anybody, right? She's better off than any. I mean, this is, the, this is the person without a depraved or sinful nature, according to Christian theology. She is the one, like if you even want to talk about libertarian free will, she is the one who would have had it, right? From a, from a, because she has no depravity inside of her. Nothing to taint, nothing to go against. In fact, and this is, remember Pelagius would be the one who would make the argument that everyone is basically born like Eve, right? That nobody has a sinful nature because the sinful nature is not passed on, right? That gets into a whole Augustine and, and Augustine and Pelagian argument, okay? But she's got it. She, everything's going good. So her issue is what? What are her, her discernment? It's coming from within, but she really has two sources driving or influencing that discernment. What are the two... Uh, things focusing, or two things influencing her discernment. What are they? God's word, what God had said, his command, and then now Satan utilizing the serpent to talk to her, right? And what Satan has done to to start trying to impact her discernment is to get her, no longer focus on what she can have, but to focus on what she can't have, and then he gives her two really good arguments to try to influence her discernment. One is don't worry about God's word because you're not going to die, so it's not true. That other thing that's influencing you is not true, all right? Second, what is the second thing he says? Go ahead in Genesis 3, you can see it. Verse 5. Okay, in other words, this is a good thing to have. What are the benefits from it? You'll be as gods and you'll be able to know good and evil, or be able to discern good and evil, which is kind of interesting. Now, I know this raises a million questions. Well, wait, where's the good and evil if the fall hasn't, I know it, it creates all kinds of problems. I know. All right. But, all right. Remember, there are lots of, lots of philosophical issues that Genesis, it's never as easy as everyone pretends. Okay. But he convinced, so now he's influencing her and her discernment that, wait a minute, I'm not going to die. And this, I'm, God's holding out on me. God's holding up. He doesn't want me to know what he knows. That's almost the way it can be viewed, right? So something is influencing her discernment. Now, the next verse is where, this is where, this is so interesting. What happens in the next verse? Because now we learn about Eve, right? Three things happen to Eve in a sense, right? What what happens, I think it's verse six. Are we correct? Am I in verse six, right? Okay, now what does she see? She sees it's good. She sees it's good. Now remember, at this point, what is completely just completely disappeared in her mind? Oh, now all the other trees and what God has said. So now what is the most influential thing influencing her discernment? What she sees. It says she sees. What else does it say? Good for food. It's pleasing, so she sees something that's good to eat. It's something pleasing, so there is a, there's, there, she sees something good and there's something pleasing. And then the third thing? Desirable. To make one wise. So she sees, sees, pleasant, desirable. See those three things? These three things now become what? The driving force in her discernment. See, no matter how discerning you are, that discernment comes from within. We, have a, we already are on a downside because we got our depravity there, right? But then we have these things that are influencing your discernment. 
In this particular case, Satan is trying. So we have, think of it this way. These are, these are, when you think of discernment for the Christian, here's what we have to remember. First, we have depravity influencing our discernment. Everybody got that? Second, we have others influencing discernment. Third, we have circumstances influencing our discernment. And fourth, what do we have? Our own personal feelings. She sees something that's good. It's pleasant and it's desirable. See something good. It is pleasant and it is desirable. So let's go through these. These are the things that influence our discernment. What are they again? Number one, our depravity. Number two, Okay, the external, right? The external. Uh, we'll, do, we'll call them circumstances, okay? We'll call them circumstances. I know I'm doing a little bit different number, numbering, but that's okay. I'll, I'll get you to help me develop the number, All right? So let's go through this. What influences our discernment? Number one, our depravity. Number two, external circumstances. Doesn't circumstances greatly impact your discernment? Right? I may, I may have the discernment to do uh, do this until something happens, right? Until something happens and all of a sudden like, whoa, that's a crazy idea, right? When, uh, when I was in Swabrook in Germany uh, during Desert Storm and we got caught in this massive blizzard and we were snowed into the hospital and like, we're never going back to the base like, because the hospital was downtown. And we're like, this is crazy. I'm, like, I, I'm not going to live in this hospital for my life. So someone comes up with this great idea. Hey, there's an there's a World War II ambulance in the garage. Let's get in this ambulance and we can get back to the base. Okay, this is a ridiculous idea, right? Now, any discerning person would have been like, I don't know, first of all, I don't even know if that thing runs. I think, you know, it looks like Hitler possibly drove it. I don't know what's going on with this thing. And someone's like, we can do it, right? Well, the, the hospital is like at the bottom of a hill. And so we start trying to get up the hill and the next thing you know I'm like we, we, we completely crashed the, the ambulance well guess what that was not a very discerning idea but what changed our discernment circumstances I, I can't live in this I need food right I need something right I can't, we can't how long are we going to be snowed in so then we decided to try to use a World War II ambulance to get out of here that it looked like the tires were still from World War II I mean it was a bad idea right and we ended up it was it was bad right I, I wasn't driving I was like you know new to the military so can't blame me right so I was good to go other than we could have possibly died bad. have you never been in a situation where your discernment was determined by and sometimes that discernment is not so good. So we have depravity. We have external. What's the third thing we have? Other people. In this case, she doesn't have a person. She has Satan. Right? Okay. And then what's the next thing? We're going to call it feelings. Because all of this is very feely kind of thing. Right? She sees what's good. It is pleasant. And it is desirable. That's all very emotional kind of language. Agreed? Now, do your emotions ever impact your discernment? Oh, never. Come on. Never. My emotions never impact my discernment. Ever. All the time it impacts it. So this immediately makes discernment what? 
a messy proposition, does it not? And we didn't even go into other things. I'm just trying to base it off this. We could add other things, right? Because we have internal built-in bias. I mean, oh man, we have so many other issues that can impact our discernment, all right? So she's got a lot going, a lot riding here. That's, that, and we know what happens, right? She takes. She gives her a husband. Now what's impacting his discernment? Well, he doesn't have a choice, right? Okay, we'll just, well, obviously that's a joke. Okay, but so he, he takes, and then of course then, Sin enters into the world, and then death, and then all the, all, all the consequences, right? And we can sit there and blame her, but we, we know we would probably do the same thing she did, right? But the bottom line is, now we have a sinful nature. Now, based off this, go to 1 John, and you already know the connection between this and 1 John. Everybody knows it. I'm not going to say anything here that's more, you know, profound. 1 John chapter 2. I know we could get into verse 15. Just remember 1 John. It's so abused and misinterpreted in the history of the church. Just remember 1 John is, everyone says it's a test, but it's first and foremost a what? It's a polemic against Gnosticism. You understand Gnosticism. You understand some of the, I don't know why people forget that John is writing against Gnostics. And when he refers to Antichrist, he's referring to certain Gnostic leaders of the time that he possibly had actual meetings with. So we we went through all of the historical background. But in this particular case, so verse 16. Now verse 15, we have the, the part that all Christians should struggle with. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does it mean to love the world? Nobody knows. We've, people have been arguing about it for the entire history of Christianity, right? Okay, but here's the key, verse 16. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and it is not of the Father, but is of the world. Right? So let's simply go with the lust of the flesh. So all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh. How do we understand that concept? All that is in the world is these three, three, three things. When we speak of the world, what are we referencing? Are we, speak, are we speaking of a physical planet? This is more of a philosophical concept, construct of the world in which we live. We live in a fallen world, Right? Fallen world is made up of what kind of people? Fallen people. Fallen people have a sinful nature. So the world is going to be structured and its ideas and its thoughts and its concepts to reflect what? The depravity that lies within, right? And it's very influential, right? Why why is the world system so influential? Because we we have the same depravity, right? And guess our depravity is very much in tune with it, right? Listen to it. So, what is in the world? Three things. Lust of the flesh. What does that mean? What is the lust of the flesh? Well, what's a good way of understanding the lust of the flesh? Would you, I want to go, de- go deeper into these, but I don't have time. I wanted to really take these apart, but I'm, I'm going to try to drive this to where I want to go this morning. Right? The desires of the flesh. That as sinners, as human beings, as to pray people, our flesh has desires, Right? Now, some of those desires are good desires, but we attempt to satisfy them in an unbiblical way. In other words, it's always important. Sometimes a desire can be okay and not sinful, but we attempt to satisfy desire 
in an unscriptural way. And we all, everyone knows that. Every, every person can understand that, right? And then sometimes our, de- our desires are what? That even the desire is incorrect, right? Even the desire. But our flesh has these desires. And the world structure is there to speak to those desires. It will offer to satisfy the desire, fulfill the desire, and sometimes offers a way to satisfy said desire in a way that's not in accordance with God's word, right? right? In other words, and go back to uh, Genesis 3, just in your mind, you don't have to look, but in Genesis 3, what is the first thing she says about the fruit? Good for food. Is there anything wrong with uh, desiring food? No, it is wrong to desire food that God, in this particular case in Genesis 3, has prohibited, Right? Or if you go to the, the laws for Israel, they had certain dietary restrictions as well, right? But the point is, if, there's a, if God says no, the desire may be okay because it's dealing with food. Right? There was lots of food. Food is okay. What wasn't okay is to partake of that. So the lust of the flesh can desire that which is can, can have a good desire, but seeks to fulfill it in an unbiblical way, or the desire can be completely wrong from the start. Does that make sense? I think everyone can agree with that. Now, the next one's a little bit more com- com- complicated. Now, lust of the flesh, we, there's far more we could go into than that, but okay, I'm simplifying it. Now, the lust of the eyes. What do you think we mean by that? What do you think we mean by that? What do you think? Come on. Well, how do you understand it? Okay, yes. This, okay, put it this way. The lust of the flesh is just dealing with the general concept that the flesh has a desire. Remember, lust does not necessarily, we, we hear the word lust and we immediately attach it to what? Usually sex and something sinful. But the word lust just means what? A strong desire, right? And it it can be, you can lust for something good. You can lust for something bad. It's just a strong desire. The flesh has strong desires, right? And the world operates in that satisfying the, everything in the world is structured to do what? To appeal to that desire and seek to, Fulfill that desire, right? I mean, every commercial that's ever been made does what? Tries to figure out, hey, you, you know, hey, you're, you're older. You need to get rid of your wrinkles. Or, you know, hey, your teeth need to be water. It tries to say, hey, you, you desire, because everyone has a desire to look good, or, right? And so it tries to fulfill that desire. Desires are normal, right? So the lust of the flesh tries to appeal to the desire. Lust of the eyes primarily focuses, still focusing on desire, but it's focused on, on the desire that is connected with what? With what we see. As one article put it, simply put, the lust of the eyes is the sinful desire to possess what we see or to have those things which have visual appeal. Well, the world loves to show us everything that looks good, and makes us desire it, and it's appealing. So, but at that point, what's focused, so please note these. We got our flesh, we got our eyes, and then what's the third one? Pride of life. What do you think the pride of life is? How do we, how do we understand the pride of life? Uh, 
Okay. This is one definition. The pride of life can be defined as anything that is of the world, meaning anything that leads to arrogance, pride in itself, presumption, and boasting. The pride of life is everything that we, out there that tries to get us to do what? Exalt ourselves. Exalt ourselves. Our focus is on ourself. Our focus is on self. Remember how I always define sin? Sin is the exaltation of the I, right? It's the exaltation of self, right? Sin is where you're like, I'm exalting me. I want this because it's me-focused, centered, self-centered. That's the very essence of our sinful nature is we're self-centered. That's just, that's just the way it is, right? So, but please note these three things, right? So the wor- there's the world out there, and the world is appealing to my desire. What I see and my pride, my pride. Now, this becomes very important. Okay, let's go back to the things that impact our discernment. Sinful nature. Now, our sinful nature means we have desires that are going to be unbiblical. Every single person has desires that are unbiblical. Every single person, right? We, we desire love for self over love for others. We desire to love ourselves more than love God. We desire God simply for the purpose of God satisfying me and giving me what I want, right? I mean, even as Christians, we'll, even the church, we're guilty of that. We turn God simply into a tool to satisfy and to serve us, right? I mean, it's just, this is the very essence of who we are, right? We have desires. We, obviously, because of our sinful nature, What's appealing to the eye, if it appeals to what we see, we want it, right? And then pride is the very essence of what we are. We're, we're prideful, arrogant, we, because sin exalts self above everything else. So immediately, the, that depravity is connected with all three of that. You see why? Because the world offers these things, and it's basic philosophy, and we are naturally drawn to it. So please know what happens to discernment. What are we naturally drawn to in our discernment? Lust of the flesh, eyes, and the pride of life. That's what we're just naturally drawn to. That's what we're naturally going to why. It's like if, if you're, it's late at night and you put on one of those bug zappers or just turn on the light. What happens at night? Woo! Nine million bugs come flying to it, right? You're like, what just happened? Turn off the light, right? Because they all, they just like... Bugs just like send out a memo, everyone, there's a light, and they, they go crashing into it, right? Well, that's our sinful nature. The world offers these things, and we naturally are like, that's just the natural way. Please, so discernment's connected. Our, our discernment's going to be impacted by this. What's the second thing about discernment that, that we had to talk about? We've got depravity. Sarah said the extra, I think she's placed number two, the external things and whichever outline Sarah gives us, we have to follow, right? Okay, so the external things, right? What are the external things? Well, circumstances and situations. And now think how this works. If there's a circumstance or a situation that, that can negatively impact your lust of the flesh or your uh, lust of the eyes or the pride of life, we tend to go what is going to bring us the most pleasure or most satisfying or make us happy. And, and because no matter what these external things are, we're going to go in a direction that's going to be more satisfying and pleasing to us. Right? 
Now, if the circumstance offers us the pleasing thing, we'll take it. If the circumstance attempts to take those things away from us, we typically are going to choose, we're going to choose a path that's going to get us those things. But this external things, and then the third thing about our depravity is other people. And what do what other people have a tendency to appeal to? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, right? Okay, right? There's still a natural draw to this, right? We have all of these things, okay? What else can impact our discernment? Was that all of them? Our feelings, and our feelings are very much connected with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. I mean, all day our emotions are attached to these things. So these things constantly impact our discernment. I want you to see how these things impact our discernment. Now, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's in the world, right? So please note, here we go. So let's go through the discernment. All right, let's make sure we, we got this, all right? all right? So here's discernment, okay? Now, for a Christian, even with Eve, we see this. Here's God's word on this side, right? There's God's word on this side, right? What's on this side impacting her discernment? Well, we can say Satan, but we can say most of these same things is impacting her discernment, right? Other than depravity. Okay? Over here, she's got, what's impacting her discernment? She's got Satan, so we'll say something external to her, who is questioning God's word, and then slowly but surely, what becomes the dominant thing impacting her? See, for good, that's good, pleasant, and desires, right? This becomes more, this then becomes what? The dominant for, source for her discernment over God's word. Now, there is, so Eve, well, what is missing from Eve is really, she doesn't have the depravity, Right? But she's, but all of us were caught between these two things. Here we are, and we have these two opposing concepts that go after our discernment, right? For us, we have all of that list of things. And the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life really become the dominant thing that impacts our discernment. It really does. Now, this is important. Many Christians view discernment as something kind of an internal thing that God is doing inside of us to give us some kind of supernatural ability in order to discern. The only problem with that is just from a historical perspective, if that's the case, Christianity wouldn't probably be the mess that it's, it's always been in, or your life and my life wouldn't be the mess that our lives are in, right? Because we all know we mess up all the time in our discernment. So in a roundabout way, I think that God, though, established kind of a, an interesting thing right? Because at some point, now he spoke to people in diverse ways, right? All kinds of different ways, yes. And then at some point, gave us his word, right? Now, the, the word was already being established before then, but I mean, it took a while before the close of the canon and all of those, the things. Now, once he gave us his word, what do we have? This is important something external to us. Now, why is that important? Because what's inside of us? Depravity, 
right? What else, and what, what else impacts us? Oh, external circumstances. What else impacts us? Okay. People, feelings, right? And the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We have an entire world system, which is external to us, but all of this is impacting what's inside of us. What's in, because anything that arises from inside of me, there's, a, there's problems with it from a Christian perspective, yes? But giving me something that's external to me, there's at least a benefit. Now, there's still a danger, right? What is always the danger every time I open my Bible and I read? What is always the danger? All of that that's in me, right? We have a tendency to do what? To place it upon it, right? Almost like a filter, right? Like here's, let's say here's the scriptures and then we uh, we place us over it and then we read us where? Into it. And that's always a danger. But it's still, it's the best option that we have is because it's still where? Outside of us. It's still outside of us. This is the whole concept of the, the, the Latin phrase sola scriptura, right? Scripture. We have to have authority that is where? Outside of us. It has to be outside of us. Now the problem, so the whole issue for the Christian when it comes to discernment, discernment should arise from where? Outside, thank you, say it again. Outside of us. Outside of us. Why does it have to be outside of us? I've now spent like an hour trying to make sure we understand that. What impacts our discernment? Our depravity. Okay? Circumstances, because those circumstances impact what? Inside of us. Third, other people that impact how we feel inside of us. And then feelings, which is the whole issue. And then the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is connected to all of these things, right? It's appealing to all of those things. Now, the minute we're involved. So the, the, the never, and it's not a perfect art. It's not a perfect art. But if we can have something that is authoritative, that is true, that is a standard that is outside of me, then my job is to try to leave as much of me outside of what? The interpretation of it. Now, is that easy to do? Oh, it's not easy to do. There's no, look, there's no magical formula. Don't even think that it's a magical formula. But I do love the fact that God has given us a written revelation that is what? Outside of me. And guess what God's word is not concerned with? How I feel. I don't like that. So what do I have a tendency to do if I don't like it? Then my feelings determine my interpretation. Now listen, I want to make this very clear. This does not guarantee that even if I can decipher and discern what it says correctly to influence my discernment, that I will do the right thing. Right? Because we're still, we're all going to sin, yes, right? That's why we're saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. That's why we're we're saved by a foreign alien righteousness outside of us, by faith alone, right? That determines my salvation. So, but I've got, I I have to realize that, and I, I want you to see the difference here. If Emma's confronted with two choices, right? One of them is completely wrong, Right? 
The other one is right. The best we hope for is that discernment, she would look to God's word, right, and say, okay, now we got to make sure it's clear, right? We don't, we don't make the Bible say something it doesn't say. But according to the scripture, this one is wrong and this one is right. She still may do the wrong one. But what do we want her to be able to do? To acknowledge that it's wrong. That's the best we can hope for. for di- if you think discernment's going to keep you from doing wrong, that's just not the case, Right? Right? That's just not the case. Do you know you're supposed to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Yes. Okay. And remember, we get back to law and gospel distinction. That is law. And what do we see every time we read that law? That we can't, but Christ did. So our only hope to fulfill that law is in the obedience of Christ to it because we fall short of it. It doesn't excuse our behavior, but we can never do that. That's law, law. Remember, the the whole Sermon on the Mount is law, 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 law that condemns, 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 condemns. And the only one who ever fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount is the one who preached it. And in Christ, his obedience, passive and active, is imputed to to me. I mean, that's a historical, theological, I mean, there's nothing new about that. That's historical. That's in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession. That's just a historical perspective, right? You may argue it wasn't the early church perspective, and you could argue it's a a more after the Reformation, but we could get into a whole historical argument there. But the point is, that's the reality of it. But here's the thing. For discernment, what we want Emma to understand is to at least be able to acknowledge, look, I know that this is wrong. I'm not justifying it. The danger is when as Christians, we know we're doing something wrong, but we come along and try to do what? Try to say that it's right. Try to twist the scriptures to justify the action. You say, well, but if you're going to do it anyway, I, I look, just hear me out. The, Discernment is at least the ability to acknowledge that it's not right. It's just the ability to, that's why, sometimes that's what disturbs me when, when, even we see it in the broader culture, is sometimes people want to argue, no, the Bible doesn't condemn that activity. No, the Bible clearly condemns that activity. Why are you so bent on trying to make the Bible say something that it's not? Because if you're going to change the the Bible condemning that activity, you better get back in line because I'm going to be changing it all day long. Like, like you you come back next week and I'll have it all changed, right? I'll have the the Trevor-approved Bible, right? And anything that I struggle with is all right, okay? But that's not the way it works. Discernment is, our job in discernment is understanding that our internal discernment is what? Flawed. And that we have an entire world system that has the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that clearly will do what? Lead me to all kinds of wrong discernment. But God has given us something outside of us. Isn't that great? Okay, at least I'm happy it's outside of me. Right? I'm glad it's outside of me. Because when you get into that, even in some kinds of Christianity which are more experiential, right? It's this never-ending trying to figure it out by my feeling or a still small voice or I hear this or I think this or I think that. And it's this, I mean, and you just see crazy, like, well, what? What just, ha-? like, it's so up and down because they're making it up on their own and they're claiming that God said it or God didn't. I don't know how you live in that kind of world. I know that's the majority of Christianity, but I can't function that way. I need a revelation. I need a standard. I need an authority that is where? 
outside of me. And I have to approach it knowing what? That it does not care what I feel. Now, sometimes that makes me upset. Because sometimes my, does my feelings always coincide with it? Even Eve without a sinful nature, what did she find herself? God's word said no, and she said, but it looks good for food. That's pleasant to the eyes, and whew, I desire this to make me wise. Did God's word change because of her feelings? No. Did not change. So our job, if we want discernment, is what? To discern, right, that this becomes the basis and the thing that motivates the discernment. Now, the problem is we bring ourselves into it. That's why hermeneutics is never what? Easy. It's always sloppy. It's always messy, right? It's always messy because we have to constantly do that. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot of other concepts here about discernment that we could get into that would be more, even more practical. But right now, I'm just looking at it from a more theological standpoint. Our, so therefore, as a Christian, to increase our discernment, we need to, be, we need to constantly have this in our mind, reading it, studying it, meditating on it. Now, is that going to guarantee obedience? Remember, obedience and discernment are two different things, right? Correct? I, Emma can probably acknowledge that you did things when you were young that you knew was wrong, but you did them. So it wasn't a matter of knowledge. Now, now I, I, I don't, did you ever try to justify it as being right? Okay, see, what, now that's where the discernment goes out the window. Right? And what, why, why do you think we sometimes have a, a desire to justify the action? Oh, pride is a good one. Could, right? But because we elevate self. And we don't want to be told that we're wrong. We don't want to feel guilty. So we then try to justify what we're doing. To me, all I'm saying is discernment has to at least just let us admit, that, that's wrong. I know it's wrong. But we have to be able to discern. So what are some ways, just we'll have to end with this because we're out of time. Um, I think when we, when we get ready to open a text, what do we have to acknowledge before we even start? How my emotions and my feelings may impact the, uh, the text. There's certain texts that you probably, you approach it differently than someone else. Right? Agreed? And what, and what can impact all of that? Well, again, your feelings and all that, how you were raised, right? I mean, come on, we can, we can, go, to a, we can go to a text, right, where de- depending, on, just, just, just go with this, depending on where you were raised, it could go this way. We'll, we can go to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, remember, that's law, 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 law. We never will fulfill it. But we can go to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus comes across, and there's no way to get around it, extremely as a pacifist, right? Resist not evil. Turn the other cheek. Do what to your enemy? Love your enemy. Pray and bless those who would persecute you and use you. That's very pacifistic, right? Some people raised in certain parts of the country may say, well, see, then I'm not owning a gun. I'm not going to shoot anybody. Well, others will be like, get it, especially here in Texas, would be like, give me a break, Jesus. You I'm going to own a gun and I'm going to love my enemy after I shoot him three times. 
right? And a lot of that, what, what is determining that discernment? A lot of it is based off what? Culture? A very bad word starts with a P. It's a really bad word. Politics, right? You, you know how I feel about politics, right? Politics, right? Politics impacts. So we have all of this stuff. Nobody comes to the text what? With clean hands. A blank page. But we have to be willing to acknowledge that I'm bringing a self-imposed concept on it. Because, the listen, we have to do this because the minute we can't trust our interpretation of this then where do we turn for discernment? You know what this comes down to? This comes to a never-ending, on the podcast I just did, I've been reading from an article that was written in 1954 that sounds like it was written in 2023 because it's talking about basically the idea of relativism and moral relativism and how it's impacting the culture. And he was complaining about it in 1954. Can you imagine where we are in 2023? But remember, when we get into a discussion about morality, there's only three sources for morality. Right? What are they? The majority of the people determine morality, right? Okay, the majority, right? Now, so, that sometimes sounds good, right? But sometimes we look in history and the majority, whoa, they had some really messed up ideas, right? Some really messed up ideas. Okay. Or the minority, but that can be disturbing. Why can that be disturbing? Well, because I can bring up organizations that are really disturbing, okay, that are in the minority, and nobody here would be like, I want their morality. Right? So you got the majority, you got the minority, you got the third, the individual. Right? These are the three basic sources of morality within culture, right? Either you're going to go with the majority, you're going to go with the minority, or you go with the individual. If you go with the individual, where does society descend into? Anarchy. So typically, society tries to work on somewhat of a majority concept, right? But then sometimes if the minority is loud enough and vocal enough that they can ultimately change the law, even though the majority may, may disagree. And then sometimes maybe it will come with the majority. So culture morality is always what? It's always in flux, it's always evolving, it's always changing. That's just the way it operates within culture. We understand that, right? Because, I mean, obviously, I mean, because by no means would I ever want to impose a, a, a theocracy or any kind of Christian nationalism. You know how I am, I'm opposed to that. But that's how society is going to operate. For the Christian, our morality is supposed to be originate from where? It's supposed to originate from there, and that's what we seek to live according to. We, we fall short of it, right? That's the whole law and gospel. God's law condemns us. The gospel is what saves us. But, but please note, it's still a, a transcendent source outside of ourselves. In other words, our discernment is making a judgment about what's right and wrong. This is supposed to be the source. So when we come to it, what are we supposed to do? Try to lay aside all of those things. It's the closest we have to a source for discernment that's not internal, because internalized discernment, there. Now, oh, there's still an internal aspect to it, right? Because I'm reading it, I'm trying to interpret it. But the best we have to do is try to go to the text and do what? Look at what was said, who it was said it to, when was it said, and understand it in its proper context 
we've been talking about the grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, right? Trying to look at it from a grammatical, historical perspective, going, this is what it says, and not worried about what? What I feel. Not even worried about what I think other than trying to figure out. Remember, what do I always say? Bible study is 99% what? Observation, 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 observation. You can't interpret until you observed, and, and your interpretation is dependent upon the quality of your observation. That's why Bible study methods are all observational, right? When you outline anything in the Bible, what can you not do? Interpret, because if your outline has an interpretation, what's the value of your outline? The outline is an observational tool so that you can observe what's in the text. And you have to observe the text and what? In a dispassionate way that here's what it says. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. And the minute I don't like it, I, I, it's okay to acknowledge it. What, 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 what's the Bible verse that causes me the most problems? Genesis 1.1, that's the, uh, that's the most troubling passage in the history of humankind. So an all-knowing, all-powerful God creates a world knowing it's going to end up like the world we live in where, what, last night another mass shooting? What, that's the fifth mass shooting yeah, uh, in this month? I think that's five mass shootings this month. What, 10 people died? Okay, uh, that's horrible, right? Well, the all-knowing, powerful God created a world knowing that would happen. That's troubling to me. It should be troubling to anyone. Now, the issue is not whether it's troubling, it's whether it's true or not true. If I accept that it's true, then whether I understand it or like it, it's true, and so I have to deal with it from that perspective. Or you've got these other things. So what I want you to see is the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is the way the world operates, and it greatly impacts your discernment. And so either your discernment is going to be this, it's going to be all these other things. Or it's going to be something you, but you are not, never just an island on itself. You are being influenced by all these other things. So it's really a com- it's you mixed with all of these other things, right? Your depravity, circumstances, other people. And what we have to do is try to keep that from doing what? Covering that up. Our job is to try to keep this as the thing that drives our discernment. And trust me, it's not easy. It's not easy. All right, now, the rest of this week, we have to figure out how that concept of discernment fits with the word conviction. But we can't do that now, so we'll have to stop. All right, Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. We are thankful that we're in a place where we can ask some of these questions and struggle with some of these issues. We pray for all the people who are out uh, this morning and are traveling. Uh, we ask that you be with them. But Lord, just uh, thank you for this. I hope that we'll give this much consideration because five minutes after walking out of this building, people will start utilizing discernment in some way, shape, or form. I hope we'll give a, a more understanding of the things that influence our discernment and how that discernment is so impacted in a negative way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...